Welcome to High Energy Health, where together we explore the leading edge of wellness and happiness. I'm your host, Dawson Church. By choosing this time together, you're declaring your commitment to a positive mindset, elevated emotions, and a great life. Thanks for joining me for today's episode. Jack is the co-author of the Chicken Soup series and also the author of a wonderful book called The Success Principles. And he also founded the Transformational Leadership Council, which brings together many transformational leaders to support them, their work, and their ideas. Jack, it's such a pleasure to have you here today. My pleasure to join you, Dawson. Thanks for inviting me. Well, I appreciate you making the time to join us, and I want to just say that your book, Jack, Success Principles, has been so influential for me and many people now. I've given this book to my children, I've given it to my colleagues, people at work, people in trouble, people who are at the top of their careers but need a boost, and it is such a remarkable testament to the ideas that make people successful. I'm so glad you have this mission of making the ideas accessible and available to people on such a big scale. Well, I'm totally dedicated to contributing to as many people as I can. Uh, my life purpose, as you probably know, is to inspire and empower people to live their highest vision in the context of love and joy and harmony with the highest good of all concerns. And I now have a goal to, uh, you know, our first goal was, our first basic goal was to sell one billion chicken soup for the soul books for over half a billion sold, 300 million, or three, yeah, 300 million just in China. And now we have a goal to train one million trainers to teach this work by the year 2030. I've always thought big. For whatever reason, I don't know. It's just part of my way of thinking. Those are astonishing numbers. In fact, when I share those with people, they have a hard time wrapping their minds around them. And those are to people, Jack, who pride themselves on having audacious goals. If you were at the Audacious Goals Club, people would point to you and say, now there's a guy with really audacious goals. <laughs> <laughs> said, I answer something else for you. When you said really audacious goals, my mind just created the acronym R-A-G-S, rags from rags to riches. Anyway, it's kind of fun. But as far as my going from self-esteem, I started out in high school in Chicago, working with inner city, mostly African-American kids, and I quickly realized they had low self-esteem. They didn't believe in themselves. I changed my objective from teaching history to raising their self-esteem, while at the same time fulfilling my job description of teaching history. And pretty soon, the administration was saying, will you teach the other teachers to do what you're doing because you've got kids that are on probation sneaking back into your classroom and sneaking out of school again because they like it so much. And then I started teaching teachers, and one day this principal of the school said, my husband's company needs what you're teaching. I said, I've never worked in a company except as a floor sweeper at a general electric plant one summer between college and graduate school. I, I don't know how to deal with that. She said, they're just big kids in suits. Now go over and work with them. So I did, and I started to get you know referrals to working in corporations and doing big 
public seminars and conferences that I was invited to speak at. And one day I decided I was just going to revector my whole career to doing public seminars so I could reach more people and also doing lots of TV and writing books and creating products that we now have, you know, a lot of online trainings and so forth. Just, it, you know, it's one step leads to another. I was just talking to my stepdaughter last night, and she's 23 and just trying to figure out what she's doing. She's going to take a culinary course and learn to cook. And I um, just, you know, I said, look, honey, you don't need to know what you're going to do 10 years from now. Just do the next thing in front of you and do it well. You don't know. You might meet someone who hires you as a private chef, and then you marry his son, and he's involved in saving homes in Africa or building homes in Africa, and then you go over there with him, and then all of a sudden you're running a foundation. and You just never know. So the main thing is just set the goals that are exciting to you now and trust that as you achieve those, you'll set the next goals. One of the analogies you use sometimes that I love is how you can see the step ahead of you, but not necessarily 10 steps ahead of you. And one of the analogies that is, is common in this space is that you can make a journey of 100 miles at night, and you can only see as far as the headlights will shine in front of you, just a few dozen yards, and yet you can make the whole journey that way. And we do so want to see sometimes those results that will manifest in 5 years or 10 years or 20 years, and yet the paradox is that just by applying ourselves really fully with focus, with attention, and seeking excellence in what we do right now, right in front of our faces, is the way we get there. Absolutely. You know, I've gotten successful writing one word at a time. In the, in the process of doing that, I've edited and written over 200 books, and it was one word at a time, one paragraph at a time, one book at a time. And, you know, I never I never foresaw when I started out that we'd have over 200 books in the Chicken Soup with a Soul series. But we wrote the first one, and at the end of the book, I said, if you have a story, send it in, maybe we'll do a sequel. And we started getting 500 stories a day, and here we are 200-plus sequels later. It, you just never know. And the main thing is I was just committed to write the best book I could possibly write. I rewrote the, the chicken, first Chicken Super Soul book I rewrote six times. And the last time I went off to a hotel in Colorado for three days and I read every story out loud just to make sure it, it read well. And that, and that was the last editing I did on it. But it's, it's a matter of doing what's in front of you well. And if you do that, the next thing opens up. And I love that metaphor of the headlights. You don't have to see ahead of you. And you can have a goal to get to New York, but you don't know necessarily how you're going to get there. But if you just keep plodding ahead, the next step shows up. One personal question about that level of success. Our mutual friend John Gray was talking recently about how at the height of the popularity of his book, Men from Mars, Women from Venus, that they were selling 60,000 books a week. And just the public pressure on him was intense. His wife, Bonnie, was talking to my wife, Christine, about just how difficult that was for for their family and just, just knowing you personally, Jack, and knowing that you're you listen well, you're attuned to people, you're loving, you're highly present. How do you deal with that huge amount of attention and yet maintain that kind of, of core of who you are? Well, I you know I'm not so sure I actually can answer that. I know that for me, I have always been humble. I always believed that I was doing a higher level of work and being guided to do it. Um, I early on, you know, was one of those not my will but thy will people. And I remember my, my favorite quote that I have in my office is one from Mother Teresa where she was leaving her monastery to start the Sisters of Charity and the head of the monastery said, you know, you've only got two cents to your name. What can you possibly do? And she said, well, with two cents, not very much, but with two cents in God, I can do anything. And, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> it's true. It's true. So I've always... 
always felt like, you know, everything I've done that was amazing came to me in the meditation or someone brought it to me, you know, because I was in that space. I've always been very loving. I've always been very sharing. Even with Chicken Soup for the Soul, we, can, we always shared tremendous amount of royalties with our co-authors and contributors and people always said, why do you do that? You don't have to. And I said, no, I want to. It's only the fair thing to do. And because of that, you know, I have a great reputation. And, and I think, you know, the other thing, Dawson, is I meditate every day. Well, at least six days a week. I don't meditate every day. I'd be a liar. But, you know, unless I'm getting up at 4.30 in the morning, catching a plane, sometimes I don't. But that's kept me centered. And I think having a wife keeps you centered, you know, because they don't buy the BS that the rest of the world is putting projecting onto you. And so, you know, you've got to deal with the the reality of that. I remember one of my best friends, the person who interviews people and writes books about them, you know, writes their biographies, he never interviews them without their spouse present because he says, I get the true story when they're present. They can't lie to me about it. And the woman will go, no, no, that's not true. <laughs> Tell the other story. All of that's kept me humble. And I came from a town in West Virginia called Wheeling, West Virginia. My dad made $8,000 a year. And remember what it's like to be in that position and where most people are living from. Yeah, and staying in that place and stay, having people in your life who are honest and frank and will talk to you about things like that is profound, profound gift. And this process of meditation, what we're finding about meditation now as we're able to explore the inner workers of the body is that it produces remarkable changes in the body. In some research I'm involved with now, Jack, we're looking at gene expression in meditation, and we're finding that genes express differently when people meditate and trigger the differential expression of genes when you do that. And the genes that we're, we're starting to map that are changing are ones that have large effects on your health. There are several genes we're, we're tracing now that have effects on tumor markers and genes that help your body identify cancerous rogue cells and then, then, then destroy those cells. Those genes are being upregulated. Those literally helping people's bodies deal with cancers. It's lowering their blood pressure, improving their heart rate, all kinds of deep shifts in the body. What you see is that people meditate after a while. They literally become habituated to balanced neurotransmitters, good levels of beneficial proteins and genes. And that feeling you have in your body, if you, if you meditate regularly and do that as a life practice, it's producing profound changes in the way you feel. Absolutely. You probably remember a book that William Glasser wrote years ago called Positive Addictions, and there are certain things running gives you the runner's high meditation that you do get addicted to because you feel so good and you know i've always been a big believer that when you feel good that's feedback from the universe you're doing the right thing or feedback from your body and absolutely i'm when you've had these great ideas you meditate you're quiet you're still you're saying you have these ideas that come to your meditation you enter that state and when you're in that state obviously getting to that state and practicing being in that state is part of of opening but when you are in that deep state how do those impulses how do those creative ideas how do those messages come to you they come as thought sometimes they come as images sometimes they come as a memory of something that then leads me to something else I've, I've had past life recalls during meditation where something that I didn't do well in a past life it guides me to do it better this life you know to be more present to be more loving to be more kind to not be caught up in the I mean one of my past lives I was a I got totally caught up in the politics of the church, and I forgot while I was there, which was to be a spiritual teacher and a guide, the shepherd, and so forth. It's come that way, but normally it comes as a thought, 
just like a, a desire maybe or a, a sense of wanting to do something or that I could do something. I started the Transformational Leadership Council, which you're a member of as a result of that. I, the, the title for Chicken Soup for the Soul came. The story on that one is that we, we had a book. We wanted to take it to New York and sell it. And we didn't have a title. And so Margaret Johansson, my co-author, and I agreed that we would meditate every day for a week and ask God for a title and just sit in meditation and uh, for an hour. And the, the first two days, nothing happened. It's the third day, this green chalkboard appeared. A hand came out and wrote chicken soup on it. And I said to the voice of the hand, you know, whoever was directing the hand, I said, what does chicken soup have to do with this book? And a voice said, when you were a child, your grandmother gave you chicken soup when you were sick. I said, but this is not a book about sick people. And the voice said, people's spirits are sick. They're living in resignation, hopelessness, and fear. This was in 1992, 93. During the first Gulf War, we were in a recession, not different than the one we just came out of. And I thought, chicken soup for the spirit? No, chicken soup for the soul. And then I got goosebumps. And goosebumps for me, I, someone calls them God bumps. They're, they literally are an affirmation that I'm thinking a thought that is divinely inspired, if you will. And so I told my wife, and she got goosebumps. I told Mark, he got goosebumps. I told my agent, he got goosebumps. We went to New York, met with uh, 21 publishers in three days, and nobody got goosebumps. <laughs> we got turned down by, by 21 publishers. And then we went to, within months, we went to this thing called the Book Expo America, where all the publishers come, and we thought we could talk to some acquisition editors. And we uh, went there, and we're turned down by another 120 people over three days. And on the last day, a little publishing company in Florida said, we'll read it. And they did, and they decided to publish it. Now, here we are, half a billion books later. I think that, you know, it comes to me sometimes, I end up dialoguing with, with something in my visual field, or I, I just, there's a conversation I have with God, however you want to hold it. But that's how it usually comes, either as a picture or as a, a movie, perhaps, or, or a thought. You had any ideas like that that you really have believed in, just as strongly, that haven't worked out? Yeah, I, a couple of years ago, maybe a moment, like 10 years ago, I just had this visualization that I was supposed to make $8 million a year and that I was supposed to give so much to charity and so on and so forth. And um, other than the year we sold Chicken Soup for the Soul for multiple tens of millions of dollars, where I did make you know more than that. You know, the most I make every year, one year I made $6 million, one year I made 3 You know, normally I make around two and a half, three million a year. And I had not been able to crack that. And I was working with a chiropractor who does some very spiritual work as well. And I said, you know, I can't get my staff to hold this vision that we can make that much money. And he said, well, let's muscle test your arm and see if it's your staff. <laughs> and he said, put your arm out and say, I feel comfortable making $8 million a year. My arm went weak. So it was me. And basically, I we did a lot of work on my beliefs about how it's not okay to make that much money and blah, blah, blah. Because my dad was a very poor. We made $8,000 a year when he was, you know, working. And I grew up that way and kind of anti-corporation and union mentality and so forth. So I had to work on getting rid of those beliefs. But as I've been doing that every year, our income's going up by about 30%. Not too far from achieving that yet, but that's one that I have not yet achieved. And I'm thinking about people who have great visions, have great ideas, and for them that's the usual experience. And people who are always having their heads in the clouds, who have enormous senses of what they can do or what might happen, and then they don't have the ability to manifest. What, what distinguishes the master manifest to the person who is able to manifest things, maybe not every single time, but consistently, where their visions usually do take shape from those that have those visions, but those things don't materialize in the outside material world. 
Well, let's start with what gets in the way. I, I think there's three things that I've seen that stop people from manifesting their vision. Well, four. Number one, they don't clarify exactly what it is. Number two, they don't say that it's a goal with a deadline, meaning it's specific and measurable, about how much by when. They are ignorant of what to do and they don't seek it out. They have fears that stop them from moving forward and they have limiting beliefs, often which are unconscious, which they don't even know they have. Just to give you an example out of my own life, the last TLC meeting you and I were at, at least Janelle, one of these uh, therapists was there and she noticed my head was forward and you know, and she said, she's a former chiropractor as well, and said, I want to do a session with you and what's, why is your head forward? It's like eventually with the weight of the world was on my back and I was trying to help everybody instead of just somebody and I was afraid to ask for more money because I would think people would judge me and then we went back in time and I can share with your audience if you want the technique we do. But anyway, we went back in time when I decided that it wasn't okay to be bigger than I was. And I was five years old, and my brother was two, and he was feeling inadequate because he couldn't do the things a five-year-old could do. And I started pulling back my own magnificence, my own abilities, because I didn't want to make my brother feel bad. There's a lot of what kept me from even being more outrageous, even though I'm pretty outrageously successful, was this thing I didn't want anyone to feel bad. Probably is part of what leads me to being as committed to serving people as I am, but it was also holding me back. And when I let go of that and realized I could charge more for my services from people who could afford to pay it, I realized that when I don't charge people what I'm worth, I'm telling them they're not worth it. And that was a, I mean, I almost fell over when I got that revelation. And I think there's so many people out there that don't ask for what they want. They charge less than what they want. People in the helping professions, they're codependent instead of like interdependent. And when I got that, it was like, okay, we can raise our fees in that area and so forth. So that was a huge, huge breakthrough for me. And I think we've all got these limiting beliefs that happen somewhere between the ages of three and eight years old. And we're not even aware of them. You know, a recent client of mine was wanting to make more money, and we worked with him. And he went back to when he was just out of college, and his father had got him a job at the same insurance company. And his first paycheck was bigger than his father's paycheck. He was really proud of it. He showed it to his dad, and his dad just walked away depressed. And later his mother said, yeah, your dad was depressed because here he has been in the company 15 years, and you've made more money than him. He said, I never wanted to hurt my father. I love my father. So here he was 20 years later, still living his life not to hurt his father, meaning never make more money than my dad. And one day after we worked on that, within three days, I think, he had almost doubled his monthly income in three days and went on that year to triple his income. Those kind of beliefs that are subconscious, I know you work with them with them, EFT, uh, they have to be released in order to be successful. And the other thing is, I think people that are, that are successful, they have the tools, affirmations, visualizations, they have positive beliefs, they're action-oriented, they follow their inner guidance, they're clear about what they want. We can unpack that more if you want, but those are the things that I think that really are sabotaging people and are the things you need to do as far as tools go to, to overcome that. So finding those things that are sabotaging you and letting them go, it may be that they're buried far below this awareness. And then as you find those things, as you're able to release them, you're able to really then step into the fullness of manifestation, which may have been hidden from you before. Jack, that's an amazing way of, of seeing it, and it can be difficult for us to do that because those early patterns are so ingrained. Jack, I am so curious about this whole way in which you get inspired get messages. And I know that many of us do have some kind of sense 
that there is a high potential that is communicating with us a sense that we can be more, we can we can achieve more, we can be more as people. And then we also get messages which are our old programming talking to us. There is a message saying, well, you know, maybe you can't uh, be limited when you get that impulse to get out of bed and do something, hit the snooze button and see sleep in instead. So how do you distinguish what is a genuine message from that guidance system and what's just your old conditioning speaking up? Well, I think two things. One is that I um, feel a feeling of expansive, expansiveness or expansion, like in my chest, my stomach, the, the, the trunk of my body. My breathing might go deeper. It's a sense of, like, you know, expanding. And it's very interesting. I was once asked the question, what do I think the purpose of the universe is? And I thought for a moment, the only thing I could think of was since the Big Bang, the universe has been expanding. So I said to expand. And this person who was quantum physicist said yes. And I thought, well, that's our purpose, too, to expand our consciousness, expand our capacity to express love, expand our wisdom, etc. When I feel that feeling of expansiveness, I trust that I'm on purpose. If I feel a, fear, a great feeling of joy come over me, I trust that. If something shows up that feels more constrictive, more contracting, perhaps feels more greedy than service-oriented, etc., then I don't trust that as much. But uh, over time, when you act on your inner guidance, you either it either works or it doesn't. And so you develop something we call discernment. You start discerning what is the quality of one message versus the quality of another. You know, we meet loving, kind people. There's a different energetic that they're putting out. You have that. I have that. John Gray has that. Reverend Michael Beckwith has that. And then you meet someone who's corrupt politician or a, a greedy business person who's raping the planet, and it's a very different energetic. You can feel it. You, you distrust it. And the same thing is true inside yourself. Where do you feel that exactly, that feeling? For me, it's across the top of my chest where my pectoral muscles would be. It's just like it feels like it's opening up and expanding. Sometimes I get goosebumps. Those are usually curl my arm. And the feeling of joy is kind of like from my head down to my, you know, the top of my legs. I just feel this sense of like, wow, joyful. You know, I'm so struck by those physical sensations. It's in your legs, it's in your pectoral muscles. And one of the, one of the kinds of findings we're seeing now in psychology is that real change and real inspiration is usually accompanied by some kind of physical feeling. It's not just a mental thing, not just an emotional thing. There is some kind of body anchor to this. It sounds like you feel these sensations in your body when you're discerning, when you're, when you're being guided, when you're onto something that really comes from your higher potential. Yes, absolutely. I agree with that. Yeah, physical as well as, as emotional, emotional and mental. And as you are in, in the question, in the, in the inquiry, do you find that at times you're, you're posing a question that is the big one for you to that guide, sense of guidance and asking for answers? Sure. I've been asking on a regular basis, what's the next step in my own unfoldment that I need to be taking, the next step in my own personal growth or my, my journey or my, my purpose in life? And just to give you an example of a couple answers that have come to me, once I was doing that and I saw this bulldozer, bulldozer I usually get the answer as an image, so the, I saw this bulldozer bulldozing down little scrub trees, like if someone was clearing a lot to build a house toppling little baby aspens over and that didn't make any sense to me so I kept watching it and all of a sudden that bulldozer was on my desk and it was bulldozing all these piles of paper and unanswered letters and to-do lists off my desk and then this voice said your work is in the world with people not at your desk you need to be working more with people and that's when I started running more seminars another time I was I asked that question and I saw a boat 
and it, it, had, it, was, it was going around a circle on a lake, and it was tethered to a, a stake with a big long chain around it. It was going around in circles, and I realized I was going around in circles in my life because I had a number of choices to make, and I couldn't figure out what was the best one, and so I was afraid to make the wrong choice. And then the boat just broke free, and the message I got was, choose anything, just get moving. You're, you're wasting way too much time thinking about it, and started uh, writing a new book that I was, was thinking about, and I, it turned out to be The Success Principles, and as you know, that sold over a million copies in 27 languages. That, that's how it comes, and that's the kind of thing I get. So I can ask questions like that. I can ask, you know, what's the best thing I can do for my sister or for my daughter? And I'll get answers, uh, sometimes auditory. Sometimes I'll bring in a wise person. I, I have a guardian angel, I imagine, coming down through the skylight of a golden temple at the top of a mountain, and I'll ask questions, and I get very wise answers. We can, you call this the high potential, and we can access that through imagery, through sound. And so when I combine imagery with sound, so I'm dialoguing with that being, if you will, which is all probably just a higher state of consciousness, uh, but we project the being onto it, then that's how I'll get answers as well. But yeah, I, I ask big questions. And it sounds like for you, there are usually visual or auditory images that you're getting. Yes. Give me an example of something that you've seen happen that has sprung from that vision, from that sense, from that initial awareness, from whether it's something that's been on your vision board, whether it's something, something you, you perceived in meditation. What's, what's the kind of really outrageous thing that's happened that's moved from that initial vision into concrete manifestation? Well, I think the obvious one is the chicken soup for the soul book. I mean, that came as, you know, sometimes, this is interesting, Dawson, sometimes the answers come from outside you. you have ask a question and you don't get an answer but then all of a sudden things start happening in your outer environment like you hear a song and the lyric of that song answers your question or I was asking what's the next step I need to take in my career and within about three days I started getting people all over everywhere I went to speak people would say that story you told about the puppy the story you told about the Girl Scout who sold 3,000 boxes of Girl Scout cookies in one year or the story about the one-legged man who climbed Mount Everest is that in the book anywhere my, my daughter needs to read it I need to read that to my sales staff whatever and so over a period of a month I mean I must have been told that 25 times which then I sat on a plane and wrote down every story I knew there was about 70 of them and then I was I'll write a book of 70 stories and then I met Mark Victor Hansen when I was almost at that stage and he said I want to finish it with you I got a lot more stories which he did and he's a much better salesperson than I am so we partnered up and that's turned into literally hundreds of millions of dollars of income for me and for him it's allowed me to speak all around the world in almost you know I think I've spoken in 50 countries now you know I go to Iran which is supposed to be you know one of our major enemies in the world and everyone's read chicken soup for the soul books I was in Oman a little country off to Saudi Arabia and I'm speaking to 600 CEOs and I ask how many have read chicken soup for the soul and almost every hand in the room goes up in Arabic it's been amazing and the other thing I would say when I was asked to allow Rhonda Byrne to come to a TLC meeting and interview people for a movie that was going to be called The Secret, I said no. I said it's going to disrupt the meeting, it's going to take everyone away and everyone's going to get their egos involved and all be trying to be in this movie and, and so I said no. And that night I was meditating, which I do, I meditate in the morning and I meditate for a few minutes at the end of the day just to see what needs to might be cleared and released. And I got this voice that said, say yes. It was like God coming to say yes. So I, literally, I literally called back Janet Atwood and told her to tell Rhonda Byrne yes. And as a result of that, I ended up in the movie The Secret. And I probably made 
you know, $5 million off going around the world speaking at secret conference. I just got a call this morning from a guy who wants to put on a conference in London next year, 10th anniversary of The Secret being published, and he wants me to come and speak, and, and uh, I'll probably get paid $50,000 for that. That was a meditation answer that led to an extraordinary journey as part of my overall journey. It sounds as though the money part has just flowed from that rather than being a primary consideration at the outset. Yeah, I, you know, I, I'll be honest with you. I always wanted to have money, and I never wanted to be a billionaire, but I wanted to have enough money to be able to do the things I wanted to do, to travel, to take seminars, to, you know, make sure I have the highest level of health, doing a lot of the kind of things you talk about, and, you know, eat well and so forth. And but No, I never set out, like, with a major goal. I mean, once I did, just because W. Clement Stone said, set a goal to make $100,000 in one year. I was making $8,000 that year, and I achieved 92000 the next year. And he said, I just want you to do this to prove these principles work. And I did, and it changed my life as well. But that's never been the main motivation. The main motivation has been impact in the world. Jack, as we talk about money, as we talk about guidance, as we talk about the areas of our lives where we move things from vision into manifestation, it, you, you've obviously had some extraordinary experience as far as this goes, and yet I know that it's not all plain sailing for you or anyone that there's not no kind of magical life where everything just works out exactly as we plan, everything manifests exactly on the schedule we believe it will manifest on. So I'm just curious for you, where are your struggles? Where's your leaning edge? Where, is, where are those areas where you have to pay a lot of attention or really work at mastery? Well, I think, you know, if I have a couple of foibles, one is over overworking. All my friends think I'm a workaholic. They think I'm just doing my purpose. <laughs> my wife and a couple of my closest friends and my children wouldn't agree. I've had to really look at how do I create more balance in my life? How do I create more time for my children? You know, I have a 43-year-old down to a 23-year-old for a five, three, three kids and two stepkids. And learning to call them regularly, learning to think about them, learning to listen rather than teach. As a trainer, I love teaching people and my kids. <laughs> Enough of that, Dad. Can you just be a dad? <laughs> so that's been a major issue for me. I think uh, the, just the whole issue of balance and taking more time to just hang with my friends and my family. I think I say yes too quickly without often thinking about the consequences, and then I end up overcommitted. Weight and fitness. My life, I was an athlete in college and so forth, and so I got a fairly good body. But at the same time, if I don't consciously monitor what I eat, and I'm, I love to eat great food, and, and I'd be a gourmet and, or gourmand, as they say, and so I have to exercise discipline with that. I have to exercise discipline with getting up in the morning. I'd rather stay up late and do research on the Internet and then be late to work than, and instead of going to bed early and getting up and exercising for an hour. Fortunately, I have a wife who used to be a ski instructor, an aerobics instructor, a massage therapist, uh, you know, all that yoga instructor. She pushes me a lot, and that's been helpful, but it's still a stretch for me. And then I think as I get older, I, I need to be more flexible in my body. That's been an ongoing issue as well. I, there was a time when I could do yoga postures like you see in those yoga manuals, and today that's very far away from what's true for me. I've got to be very careful to stretch in the morning and stretch at night, and, and I don't always do it. You know, I'm, I'm eager to get to work. I love what I do so much, and that's a, just a habit, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm slowly working on more self-care, if you will. And then I think 
appreciating people. I teach appreciation, but sometimes I forget to appreciate my staff because we're just so focused on things. And then eventually I get feedback that, does Jack really know what I do? Does he really care? So that's an issue for me. It's an ongoing thing. I literally right now have a three-by-five card on my desk with five little boxes, and I have to appreciate five people before I go to bed. I'm making that a new habit that's becoming someone I have to check out off on a three-by-five card, things like that. Yeah, there are always things we have to pay attention to, areas we must, repetitively, areas we have to struggle with or pay attention to our whole lives, and mm-hmm. it's good to get a sense of yours. I think your strategy of marrying your yoga instructor, brilliant idea. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Sometimes she acts like the food Nazi. I'm not so happy about that, but it's always too much. <laughs> You know, having a happy marriage is just one of those things. I, I know you know the importance of this as well, but having had one of each, one which wasn't very good and one which is amazing, it's just so powerful to have people around you and in your life who, who, who connect with you, who love you, who support you. And I'm so nurtured by being a member of the TLC, the Transformation Leadership Council. I actually emailed you just a few days ago to say nothing other than thank you, thank you, thank you for this group of people and the kind of elevated conversation, emotions, experience we create together, and that's such a part, I think, of self-nurturing and also of finding alignment with your higher purpose and power because when you are with those people, it's easy. You can co-create together. You can be in that energy space of having that that sense of a purpose, of power, of, of making a difference in the world. So doing it collaboratively in a group, I think, has a lot of merit to it. Right. Well, if we talk about high-energy health, I mean, all the research on having community, uh, people that have a loving, supportive community around them, they live longer. They, they recover. For, they have fewer heart attacks. If they have a heart attack, they recover faster from almost any illness, tend to be more productive, at the same time more balanced. Community is really important. And, you know, there's that old saw within the human potential movement that you become the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And I think that's absolutely true. And I always tell people, when you were a kid, your parents probably said, I don't want you hanging out with those people. They're a bad influence. Well, people don't stop being a bad influence when they become 18. And who we hang out with is affecting us on many many, many levels, and so you want to surround yourself with positive people. And, you know, the other thing is, just about TLC, I needed a community of people that did similar work, and it didn't exist. I had to create it. And anybody in any place in the world could create a, a community of people that do similar work with you. We have a doctor in town who started a, a once-a-month luncheon for people in the helping professions, you know, medical healing. And the reality is he's now the most well-known doctor in town, not because he's the best doctor, although he's, I'm sure he's very, very good, but because he started this group that other doctors are now benefiting from. And I'm probably not the most powerful person in the human potential world, but I'm probably one of the most well-known because I gathered together all the other ones that were doing similar work and elevated me. So one thing you can do is go out and create a group. Surround yourself with the kind of people you want to be surrounded with. Don't feel like you're a victim. Be the uh, be the worst one who creates it. Jack, I'd love to have you share some examples of that, both from your own experience and perhaps from the experience of people that you've met or talked to about how the, the thoughts we think can be profoundly creative. Well, the thoughts we think are creative. We create, if you want to know, what you were thinking a couple of years ago, look at your current life. And basically, you know, everything we're experiencing is a result of the thoughts we thought, the visions we, the visualizations we had, and the behaviors we either did or didn't do. And we have control over that. My formula, E plus R equals O, events in your life plus your response equals your outcome. So an event occurs, you then have a thought, and that thought produces how you feel. How you feel will affect your health. One example would be your husband forgets your birthday, and you think he doesn't love me. 
then you feel bad. And if you feel bad, then you tend to want to be mad at your husband. You are producing more acid in your body, so you want to be alkaline to be healthy. You know, all these things we know. You could think instead of my husband doesn't love me, you could say to yourself, someone who loves me forgot my birthday. I wonder what's going on with them. And that, that gives you a totally different experience of your emotions and your body and all of that. I can call someone an idiot and they either agree with me or they don't. And it's the agreement, not me calling you an idiot, that determines how you feel. We're constantly thinking all day long. Some researchers have said 50,000 thoughts a day. And the thoughts you think over and over and over and over become a belief. A belief is just thoughts you decide, and then you keep thinking them. Often the thoughts that we, the decisions we make, the thoughts we think up, the beliefs we come to grips with when we've had an emotionally traumatic experience, as you know, tend to log in more because we secrete more protein into the brain, which makes the little dura, the dendrites at the end of the neurons grow thicker. And it's like you have a bowling ball, like the gutter on the side of a bowling alley. And once that ball goes into that gutter, it's just going to stay in that gutter and go right down until it falls down you know, behind the pins. And we've got a lot of gutters, if you will, that we've created that we need to release. Now, on the positive side, you can start thinking a thought through a discipline of affirmations, through meditation, through having posters around your, your house and, you know, things on your computer screen, sayings and so forth. To give you one example of my own life, I mentioned this just briefly early, W. Cummins Stone said, I want you to set a goal that's measurable and huge so you'll know you achieved it uh, because of what I taught you. So I set a goal to make $100,000 in one year. And then up until then, I was making about $8,000 a year. So that was a huge increase. And so what I did was I created a $100,000 bill. I just made it up one big green paper and put it on the ceiling of my bedroom. So every morning, the first thing I'd see when I woke up was this $100,000 bill. Then I would repeat an affirmation I had, which said, God is my infinite supply. Large sums of money come to you quickly and easily under the grace of God for the highest good of all concern. As I easily earn, invest, and spend $100,000 a year. Say that. Then I would go and I would visualize what my $100,000 a year lifestyle would look like. So now we're combining auditory affirmations with visual visualization and then I would go and I would take a shower and I would forget about it and 30 days into it I was in the shower and I had this idea it's the first idea I ever had on how I could generate a hundred thousand dollars in a year I had a book out called 100 ways to enhance self-concept in the classroom every time that book sold I made 25 cents so if I could sell 400,000 books, I would make $100,000. Didn't know how to do that, but at least it was a leverageable idea. So now I started studying how do you sell books, and I was doing all these kind of things. And then I started a, a bookstore. My wife said, if we had a bookstore, when we sold your book, you'd make $3 retail profit instead of just $0.25 cents royalty. So now I only got to sell 33,000 copies of my book. So now all these ideas are starting to come to me. And we start selling books, and we're doing very well at it. And then we saw that people that were buying this I buy other things for self-esteem, started a catalog. We had 32 products, eight-page catalog. Started sending that out to schools and conferences and so forth. And we started getting more money out of a high school student to come in and sell these, you know, package them up and send them off. And then over at the University of Massachusetts, where I was in the town of Amherst, Mass, they were putting on a counseling a conference for counselors. And they said, could you bring your bookstore over? Because we got a lot of counselors coming in. We went over there. We made $2,000 profit that weekend. I thought, wow, if I could do that every week, that's a $100,000 a year business. I also started to raise my fee. I went from $300 a day to $800 a day. A lot of things have started to happen. Now, I, I did not make $100,000 a year. I made $92,325.28. I remember filling out my income tax report. And, but my wife said, wow, that's amazing. That works. Do you think it'll work for a million? I said, I don't know. Let's put a million-dollar bill on the ceiling. Let's start visualizing and affirming a million dollars. And if you were in a seminar right now, I would put a 
picture of my first million dollar check up on the screen. It was a million one hundred thirty five thousand dollars for a royalty check, and my publisher actually put a smiley face in his signature at the top of the P for Peter, and it was the first million dollar check he'd ever written to an author. Basically, if you do the work of the affirmations, the visualization, and then you do, you're going to get inspirational ideas. That's what comes from inside, what you're calling the higher potential. Then you've got to act on them. That's the thing that a lot of people think they just have to visualize and meditate and think positive. But you also have to act on the inspirations and act on the obvious things. If you combine all of that, you can pretty much produce anything you want in life. Yes, I love your success principle called the power of five. You have us do is do five concrete things. Things to support that every single day, and that's been very powerful for me. Jack, I'm so grateful for you, your energy, your spirit, your work, your generosity, and I know that you will continue to bless and touch and shift the lives of that billion people plus as you keep on doing it. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Again, Jack's website is Jack. Hanfield.com. Please do go there and take action on what you've heard here today. 